Welcome to the Law with DK Williams. Giving the courts credit when they get it right, calling them out when they get it wrong. Welcome back to the Law. I'm DK Williams and this is episode 82. We're going to discuss an incredibly timely case that is 115 years old. It is Jacobson versus Massachusetts. It couldn't be any more timely. It is about government power, what's allowed and what's not. During a public health crisis, and I'll put that in quotation marks because people define what a crisis is differently. This case is so timely that the current Supreme Court relied on it about two months ago to deny an injunction, a request filed by the South Bay Pentecostal Church in Chula Vista, California, to stop enforcement of California Governor Gavin Newsom's COVID-19 public health orders that did a lot of things, but among them, it limited attendance at churches to 25% of the building capacity or a maximum of 100 people with different, more lenient standards for other activities like going to grocery stores and laundromats. So the church is like, you can't treat us differently. We're a church. If you treat us differently than secular activities, that's a violation of the First Amendment. They sued to stop enforcement of those public health orders, didn't get an emergency injunction, went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court upheld the denial of the injunction. And you may have heard about that case in the popular media, if you keep an eye on such things. And we put a link to the South Bay Pentecostal Church case, which, like I said, came out two months ago, and to the case the Supreme Court relied on in denying the injunction. That was, that's the 1905 case, Jacobson versus Massachusetts. So y'all can easily find both of them if you wish. And there's a third link because I think it's important to remember that these Supreme Court cases deal with real people, real institutions. So I put a link to the actual official website of the church the South Bay Pentecostal Church in Chula Vista. So you can see pictures of the people who attend, the staff who work there, all of that, because these issues sometimes I think are treated like abstract discussions, but they affect real people and how they are allowed allowed to live and conduct their daily activities and how they worship by the government. These are serious, practical issues that aren't just abstract legal principles. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas, and you can subscribe to The Law and other Speakeasy Ideas podcasts through your favorite podcast app. And for these, go right to speakeasyideas.com slash the law. Follow this podcast on social media. On Twitter, it is at the law, D.K.W., and on facebook.com slash the law with D.K. Williams. I'm available for speaking engagements, consulting, and teaching. Contact Bethany at speakeasyideas.com for details on that. Likewise, love for you to contact Bethany if you'd like to contribute to our work here at The Law with D.K. Williams via a sponsorship. So by way of introduction to this 1905 Jacobson case, we've got the South Bay Pentecostal Church case where they were seeking the injunctive relief from the Governor Newsom orders. And it's important to remember that an injunction is a special remedy. It's not your standard everyday case. Most cases are about, hey, you damaged me. You owe me money. So I'm going to sue you for it. Or, hey, you broke our contract and you owe me money. So I'm going to sue you for it. Or the state charges someone with a criminal act and therefore you have a right to a trial. An injunction is different. It isn't saying, hey, you owe me money. It is a legal and equitable remedy in the form of a special court order that compels a party to do or refrain from doing specific acts. In this case, the church was looking for a court to order the state of California to stop 
enforcing the restrictions on church attendance. It's considered an extraordinary remedy because it's asking a court to order something without a full trial. So they're harder to get. So a denial of a motion for an injunction doesn't mean the church would not win after a complete discovery and a full trial. It just means they don't get that order immediately or before any of that happens. Another great example of an injunction is in the movie Caddyshack when Judge Smales is made aware that gophers are tunneling into the golf course from a construction site across the street. Construction site is for condominiums being developed by Al Shervick. And Judge Smale says, I'll slap an injunction so fast on them, it will make their head spin. He wants a court order forcing them to stop construction on the condominiums. Everything goes back to Caddyshack in the end. So in this Pentecostal church case, it was a 5-4 decision where the U.S. Supreme Court denied the church's request. So California can continue to enforce those orders. The Supreme Court doesn't have to write an opinion on a case like this. They can just issue an order that says, in effect, denied. But here, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote a two-page opinion. Again, it's linked in the notes. Explaining why he, just he, just writing for him, why he voted to deny the application for an, an injunction. The other justices that agreed that it should be denied were Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor. So that's your five. Justices Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh would have granted the injunction. So in my view, Roberts cites frightening language from this 1905 case we're discussing, Jacobson versus Massachusetts. But to quote Obama, let me be clear. I'm not saying I have a simple answer to the question presented. I'm just hoping we do not get too flippant in granting executive branch officials like the governor of California or anybody else discretion to order people around. So Roberts, explaining why he doesn't want to grant this church in California an injunction, cites Jacobson and he writes, Our Constitution principally entrusts the safety and the health of the people to the politically accountable officials of the states to guard and protect. Now note this because it's important. Roberts cites the Jacobson case for this proposition. He doesn't cite any portion of the Constitution. Always be wary when you see that. The Supreme Court is citing itself, something it wrote before, not a provision of the Constitution where that power comes from, that you're citing yourself. You know, the old phrase about hoisting yourself upon your own petard. That's basically what the court does way too often. But what is the limitation on that section that Robert cites from Jacobson? What's the limitation on that? We trust the safety and health of the people to the executive branch to guard and protect us. We do? I submit the entire point of the Constitution is to severely limit, if not prevent, any of us from having to merely trust the political class or bureaucrats. So this 2020 Supreme Court case relied on the 1905 case, Jacobson versus Massachusetts. So let's look into that one. Hinning, Jacobson, first name was Hinning, was a resident of Cambridge back at the turn of the century. Well, the turn of the 1900s. The Commonwealth of Massachusetts, not a state apparently, it's a Commonwealth, had a statute passed by the state, state legislature, in response to a smallpox outbreak. You can see the timeliness of this, right? The Massachusetts statute said, the Board of Health of a city or town, if in its opinion it is necessary for the public health or safety, shall require and enforce the vaccination and revaccination of all the inhabitants thereof and shall provide them with the means of free vaccination. Whoever, being over 21 years of age, refuses or neglects to comply, so whoever refuses or neglects to comply with such requirement shall forfeit $5. 
Dave, you might be asking, how much would $5 in 1905 dollars be in 2020 dollars? Excellent question. Getting the real value of money is always important when you're talking across eras. So $5 in 1905, according to an internet inflation calculator I have found, would be almost $150 in 2020. So we know how much $5 in 1905 is in today's dollars. Pursuant to the Commonwealth statute, Cambridge, the city of Cambridge in Massachusetts, adopted a regulation that said, whereas smallpox has been prevalent to some extent, in the city of Cambridge, and still continues to increase. And whereas it is necessary for the speedy extermination of the disease, that all persons not protected by vaccination shall be vaccinated. And whereas, in the opinion of the board, the public health and safety require the vaccination or revaccination of all the inhabitants of Cambridge, be it ordered that all the inhabitants of the city who have not been successfully vaccinated since March 1 of 1897 be vaccinated Henning Jacobson didn't want to do that. He refused to get the vaccination. Even though the city would provide it for free, he was cited for the refusal to get vaccinated, and he was fined the $5. Jacobson argued that the regulation under the city where he lived, Cambridge, Massachusetts, he said, it is in derogation of the right secured to me, the defendant, by the 14th Amendment of the Constitution of the United States, and especially of the clauses of that amendment, and we have discussed the 14th Amendment several occasions, the clauses of that amendment providing that no state shall make or enforce any law abridging the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. All right, so he lost at the trial level where he was ordered to, quote, stand committed until the fine was paid. That means be put in jail until he paid the five bucks. Now, that by itself is a travesty that I cannot believe happens ever in the United States, but it did, and it still does to some extent. There are places and times where if you're fined for something and you can't pay the fine, they'll put you in jail. It's essentially a debtor's prison. Now, the opinion doesn't say if Jacobson paid the money straight away and objected to it, or if he was actually put in jail for some length of time before it got paid, if it ever got paid. So I don't know exactly what happened to Jacobson himself regarding payment of that five bucks. But he lost at the trial court. He lost at the state appellate levels, including the state Supreme Court. And he argued it to the Supreme Court of the United States, where he also lost. In a 7-2 decision, the Supreme Court of the United States said, yes, Cambridge, Massachusetts can compel you to get a vaccination or pay five bucks. And if you don't pay it, you go to jail, right? That's government force. And this is an important point. Henning Jacobson, the man, he was able to appeal from the Massachusetts Supreme Court to the U.S. Supreme Court for one reason. That's the 14th Amendment. But for the 14th Amendment, that would have been the end of his case. It would have been a strictly a state issue based on the state legislation and the state constitution. Because without the 14th Amendment, there's no federal issue. Because remember, the Bill of Rights, which is more appropriately called the Bill of Restrictions, because it doesn't grant rights, it restricts the government from doing things that would infringe on your rights that exist because you're born. The Bill of Restrictions did not apply to the states by their very terms. So prior to that, there would be no appeal to the federal courts from a local ordinance that was authorized by the state like it was here. There was no federal issue for Mr. Jacobson here except for the existence and the passage of the 14th Amendment. Remember, because unlike earlier amendments, Bill of Rights slash restrictions do not apply to the states. But the 14th Amendment expressly does apply to the states. That's the very point it was passed. And the 
14th Amendment says, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor to deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. And we've mentioned this before, but you notice at one point it talks about citizens of the United States, and another point it talks about a person, any person within the jurisdiction of the United States. They did that on purpose. Sometimes they say citizens, sometimes they say person or people. They do that on purpose. We'll leave that aside for now. But compare the Bill of Rights restrictions. The language there says Congress shall make no law. That's the federal government. Compare that to no state shall. And you can see those two constitutional amendments or groups of constitutional amendments are directed at completely different sovereign so the U.S. Supreme Court ruled against Jacobson, like I said, 7-2 decision. And John Marshall Harlan, the first, wrote the opinion for the court. Now, he is well known, probably most well known, for being the lone dissenter in the Plessy v. Ferguson case, which we covered in episode 7. That was the creation of the separate but equal doctrine interpreting the 14th Amendment. So he was the lone dissent in that. Everybody else said, yeah, it was okay to have separate trains for different races. Now, Harlan I was eventually vindicated in Brown versus Board of Education some six decades later, which we covered in episode eight. Justice Harlan had a grandson with the same name who also served on the Supreme Court half a century later. And we've mentioned Justice Harlan II several times as well, most notably for his dissent in Reynolds versus Sims, which we covered in episode 34, where he wrote my favorite language, perhaps in all of Supreme Court jurisprudence. He wrote, the Constitution is not a panacea for every blot upon the public welfare, nor should this court be thought of as a general haven of reform movements. So Jacobson wanted to argue that smallpox vaccinations were a bad idea. He wanted to have an expert testify on his behalf that mandatory vaccinations were bad policy, but he was prohibited from making that argument at every level. And indeed, that makes sense. Important thing, there's always going to be an expert willing to testify against something. Lawyers actually have resources where what I, I call them lists of like experts are us. You need to find an expert to say something. Here you go. Here's your list to find someone who will say it. The place to hear expert testimony about policy is on the floor of the legislature. But it's not an argument that a law is invalid merely because it's a bad idea. And that's one, one thing that Jacobson wanted to argue here. But what's important, and Harlan is correct about this, Harlan wrote, is the statute, which authorized the Cambridge requirement to be vaccinated, inconsistent with the liberty which the Constitution of the United States secures to every person, again, person, not citizen, United States secures to every person against deprivation by the state. And Harlan is actually making a federalism argument here on behalf of the Supreme Court. It's based on the enumerated powers of the federal government and the Ninth and Tenth Amendment, which largely have been ignored. So Ninth Amendment says, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others, other rights, retained by the people. So just because the Bill of Rights slash restrictions specifically mentions the right to free speech and the right to bear arms, that doesn't mean there's not an infinite number of other rights. Just because we didn't mention them doesn't mean they don't exist. So that's what the Ninth Amendment literally says. And again, that's like a lost concept in modern jurisprudence. And the Tenth Amendment goes hand in hand, and it says, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, and those are the specific things listed in Article 1, Section 8. These are the things the federal government can do. So any power not delegated to the United States in that section, nor prohibited by it to the states, 
which means the Constitution says in some places the states can't do something. Other than that, everything else, every other power, every other governmental authority is reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people. And Harlan says, the authority of the state to enact this statute is to be referred to what is commonly called the police power, a power which the state did not surrender when becoming a member of the union under the Constitution. So that's the Tenth Amendment basis for that statement. The police power was not given to the federal government, so the state retained it. If only we still dealt with it that way, we wouldn't have 8 billion federal law enforcement agencies because the police power is not there. It wasn't given to the federal government, except for a couple things, treason and a couple things that are specifically listed. But they're very, very limited. The court says, although this court, the U.S. Supreme Court, has refrained from any attempt to define the limits of that power, the police power, yet it, the U.S. Supreme Court, has distinctly recognized the authority of a state to enact quarantine laws and health laws of every description. Now get this next line, because this part is correct. All state laws that relate to matters completely within its territory and which do not, by their necessary operation, affect the people of other states. So the federal government has no authority to deal with intra-state regulation. Intra-state. That's what he's saying. If only that was still true. He's making a legitimate interstate commerce argument. Congress can regulate interstate commerce. Again, Worker versus Filburn, which we discussed in episode five. Congress cannot, has no legitimate authority, because they do, but they have no legitimate authority to regulate intrastate activities. So Congress cannot do that, regulate intrastate activity. But what Harlan is saying, and he's right, is that the state can. The state can regulate intrastate activity. And so he's saying that because the state can do that, they can make you get a vaccine. And actually, if we had continued, the Supreme Court had continued to apply that, Wickard v. Filburn never would have happened. And it did happen 37 years after this case, which it was 1905. 42, Wickard v. Filburn destroyed the constitutional concept that the federal government has limited and specific powers. Harlan goes on. The police power of a state must be held to embrace at least such reasonable regulations established directly by legislative enactment as will protect the public health and the public safety. So he's justifying Massachusetts' mandatory vaccinations. So there's a limit to this police power. The limit is reasonableness. Reasonable regulations. But a limit of reasonableness is no actual limit. In Korematsu, where the United States Supreme Court upheld the internment of Japanese Americans, and we discussed in episode 51, in that case, in Korematsu, Congress, the president, and the Supreme Court found internment of American citizens reasonable, given the national interest in defending a war. So if reasonableness allows that, and it has since been overturned, but it didn't stop it from happening, it happened. And it was the law for decades, until recently, actually. Reasonableness is no limit. Because if the people in power say it's reasonable, it is. Without some other limit on it, right? So whenever you hear the government has reasonable power to do something, say, well, is that it? That's the only limit? Is what they say is reasonable? Because that's no limit. The court continues. We, the U.S. Supreme Court, we come then to inquire whether any right given or secured by the Constitution. Okay, no right is given by the Constitution, but that's what he says. Secured by the Constitution, yes. Any right secured by the Constitution is invaded by the statute. They have to find out. We have to ask. Did Mr. Jacobson, the defendant, Jacobson, insist that his liberty is invaded when the state subjects him to fine or imprisonment for neglecting or refusing to submit to vaccination? Well, of course it is. 
And this is a recurring problem in constitutional discussions. The state can deprive you of your liberty. If you're convicted of a crime, you can go to jail. If you've got all the due process followed, everything else, we have the jails chock full of people that have had their liberty invaded because the state has subjected them to imprisonment for whatever. So if he is imprisoned for failing to pay the fine and he, his property is being taken away from him, so yeah, his liberty is invaded. And people say, no, it's not. They say, no, it's not because it's important for him to get vaccinated. Well, that doesn't mean it's not being invaded. It is being invaded. But you're saying that invasion of his right is inferior to the government interest in making him do something. That's the honest and correct way to look at it. It's absurd to say that his liberty is not being invaded by being put in jail for not paying a fine. Of course it is. But there can be times, constitutional times, that the state can deprive you of your liberty and property. And that's when these balancing tests get invented, which I have railed against. These balancing tests almost always invoke a compelling state interest that can override some application of someone's liberty. Again, people in jail are been fined, have had their liberty infringed upon, but if they've been convicted in a constitutional process, the liberty can be legally impinged. But don't say it hasn't been impinged. Of course it has. Harlan goes on for the court. That a compulsory vaccination law is unreasonable, this is Jacobson's argument, unreasonable, arbitrary, and impressive, and therefore hostile to the inherent right of every freeman to care for his own body and health in such way as to him seems best, and that the execution of such a law against one who objects to vaccination, no matter for what reason, is nothing short of an assault upon his person. That's Jacobson's argument. And let's look at this assault issue. Forcing someone to get a shot is an assault. It is. Now, you can say it's justified. Fine. Say it's justified, but don't deny it's an assault because an assault is any unwanted physical contact. That is the legal black letter law of assault. And if you don't want a vaccination, it's unwanted and it's physical contact. That is the actual definition of an assault. So yes, it is an assault, but that doesn't mean you can't make a constitutional argument that the assault is justified, but denying it is an assault is ignorant. But people don't ever want to admit that the government is doing something to harm people or to do something against their will. So now the court really gets into it. Harlan writes, but you got to love it when they say but, but the liberty secured by the Constitution. And again, he said that right. The liberty secured, not granted the liberty secured by the Constitution of the United States to every person again, not citizen to every person within its jurisdiction does not import an absolute right in each person to be at all times and in all circumstances wholly freed from restraint. That's correct. That's where due process is involved. You have to have due process before one can have that liberty infringed upon by the government. As another modern application, contact tracing would be much easier if everyone had to have a GPS chip installed under a skin. Be much easier. That's just a fact. And some people do and would adamantly advocate for such a thing, and they would sincerely and earnestly believe it to be in the best interest of public health and safety. And that should be frightening. And a great argument could be made that a chip like this would be awesome for public health and safety. It, there's a great argument for that. Think of all the missing kids and all the other people we could find. We just need to mandate a chip in everyone. All of us, we need to have that. Why would anyone oppose such a thing when it could save us the lives of children? It could stop sex trafficking because we would know where these people are. We could find them. If you oppose this, you hate kids or you're at least completely indifferent to their fate. I could go on and on like that. And you know, that is exactly what you would hear all in the earnest belief in the necessity to do it in the name of public health and safety. 
And that's the danger. Harlan goes on. There are manifold, many, restraints to which every person is necessarily subject for the common good. Oh my goodness. Whenever a politician justifies the use of government force in the name of the common good, a cold chill should run down your spine. When a government agent says we need to do something for the common good, remember what William Pitt the Younger said. Necessity is the plea for every infringement of human freedom. It is the argument of tyrants. It is the creed of slaves. So when the government says we need to do something, stop and pause. And think about, do they, do they need to do it? Do they need to use force on people to compel them to do something? Maybe they do. Maybe there are times when we need a law compelling people to do something they do not wish to do. But never let the cry of common good be a trump card for any and all government force. As H.L. Mencken said, the urge to save humanity is almost always a false face for the urge to rule it. Just tap on the brakes when you hear this kind of stuff. That's what I implore everyone to do. Tap the brakes when you hear it's for the common good. It's for the public health and safety and morals. Tap the brakes. Court goes on, and this is frightening. It really is. If we take it to its logical conclusion, Harlan writes, real liberty for all could not exist on the operation of a principle which recognizes the right of each individual to use his own whether in respect of his person or his property, regardless of the injury that may be done to others. But no one seriously argues that you should be able to do whatever you want, regardless of the injury that may be done to others. No one makes that argument seriously. That's not a serious argument. So he's setting up an argument no one's making. He goes on. This court, U.S. Supreme Court, has more than once recognized it as a fundamental principle that persons and property are subjected to all kinds of restraints and burdens in order to secure the general comfort, health, and prosperity of the state. Now he's not even using the word, the phrase common good. Now he's saying for the state, prosperity of the state, the health of the state, the comfort of the state. He's not even using common good anymore. And that is frightening. It might remind one of this quotation Everything within the state, nothing outside the state, and nothing against the state. I hope you know who said that. And these terrifying fascist sentiments continue. Oh, but Davis, not fascist. It's for the common good. Yeah, I think we see the problem with that argument. I hope we do. Court says, the possession and enjoyment of all rights are subject to such reasonable conditions as may be deemed by the governing authority of the country essential to the safety, health, peace, good order, and morals of the community. Let that sink in. All of your rights. He says all rights are subject to such reasonable conditions. Reasonable conditions subject to conditions deemed, ordered by the governing authority to be essential. Essential to the good order and morals of the community. He's saying all rights are subject to limitations the government deems necessary. That's literally in this United States Supreme Court decision. So we're not arguing about the policy of mandatory vaccinations right now. We're arguing about the limits of the power of the government. And this provides no limit. This is insane. Who thinks John Adams would have been down with that? All your rights are subject to conditions deemed by the governing authority to be essential. Who thinks Patrick Henry would be down with that? Not even Alexander Hamilton would have countenanced such nonsense. Yet here it is in a 7-2 Supreme Court decision. And you can see why this Jacobson case was used just two months ago to deny the church's plea to be allowed to have more than 100 people come to the church. You can see how that works. It goes from mandatory vaccines to you can only have a certain number of people in your church. 
your right to free expression of religion is restricted because the government has deemed it necessary. That's frightening. The court keeps going, but I'll try to wrap it up with this. Even liberty itself, Harlan writes, in a 7-2 to decision, the greatest of all rights is not unrestricted license to act according to one's own will. It is only freedom from restraint under conditions essential to the equal enjoyment of the same right by others. It is then liberty regulated by law. Again, he's making an argument no one is disagreeing with. We know you cannot use your will to shoot someone. No one is saying you can use your will to shoot someone or hit them in the head or assault them in any way or steal their money or their watch. No one's saying that. So his highfalutin words here are arguing against something no one is arguing against. A restriction on assaulting someone else, right? You can't shoot somebody. You can't hit somebody. I'm not counting self-defense or for your own monetary gain. A restriction on assault is not the same thing as a requirement that one must be assaulted by the government. They are opposites and the comparison is inappropriate. The honest argument, and very few people make it, and I'll give props to those who do. Yes, the argument is, yes, the government has the authority to force you to have something injected into your body because the governing authority has deemed it necessary for the common good. Don't sugarcoat it in words of liberty and patriotism, which we've all seen in this COVID, potential COVID vaccine, they don't have one yet, but in this potential COVID vaccine discussion, call out this Orwellian newspeak when you see it, and there is plenty of it. We've seen it right here in Colorado from the governor and the mayor of Denver. We've seen arguments to the effect that mandatory masks are freedom. Don't put up with that. You can say the government has the police power to force you to wear one for the common good, and they should have that power. I mean, that's an argument. I disagree with it. But to say that it is freedom to be forced to do something is nonsense on a ritz. You can't call the sun, the moon, and be taken seriously. That's where the newspeak comes in. Don't call government force freedom. It's ignorant. Don't let them get away with that. The court goes on, makes several more pleas for the common good, for the state. The concept of the common good is dangerous. Is there a common good? Absolutely. Has it been used to justify some of the most horrific crimes in the history of the world? Yes. So the common good isn't some magic phrase that justifies any imagined government force. I unapologetically submit the common good is achieved by less government force, not by more. Fewer government guns is better for the common good than more government guns. Are some people going to act a fool? Yeah. And that's why I end every podcast the way I do. Freedom is dangerous. Live dangerously. It is dangerous to let others make their own decisions. But that is the only way to ensure you get to make your own. That's what's dangerous. And that's why we must live dangerously. Otherwise, government officials are going to deem your actions subject to a deprivation of liberty for the common good. Nothing is 100% black or white, but we're way too far on one end of that spectrum. FDR and the Supreme Court and the legislature, Congress, said, hey, we need to lock up the Japanese, you know, for the common good. And that's just one easy real-life historical example we have dealt with. All right, one more example. The court compares the military draft with forced vaccinations. Harlan writes, the liberty secured by the 14th Amendment, this court has said, consists in part in the right of a person to live and work where he will. And yet, which is just another way of saying but, but he may be compelled by force if need be, at least he's honest about that, 
He may be compelled by force if need be against his will and without regard to his personal wishes or his pecuniary interests or even his religious or political convictions. He can be compelled to take his place in the ranks of the army of his country and risk the chance of being shot down, of being killed in its defense, the defense of the state. That argument is Starship Troopers level frightening. That argument has no end. He is literally saying, the Supreme Court is saying, since a draft is possible, we can force you to, to do anything short of being put on a battlefield to die. Since a draft is possible, we can force you to do anything. We can force you to go die. So we can force you to do anything. It is a horrendous argument, completely devoid of constitutional merit, and it should be called out as such. And then, as he's getting closer to wrapping this up, Harlan writes, What the people believe is for the common welfare must be accepted as tending to promote the common welfare, whether it does in fact or not. That is in the Supreme Court decision. I'm sure the Japanese interned will take much solace in that. They have to accept it, whether it's for the common welfare or not. That's what the Supreme Court says. And I can only hope when people hear this kind of governmental arrogance that the government knows what's best. The governmental officials who are elected by the people know what is best and they can tell you what you have to do as long as it's in the name of the common good. So I hope when people hear this kind of governmental arrogance, they can contrast it with the ideas in the Declaration of Independence of Patrick Henry, of Thomas Paine. So we can see how the principles espoused by the Supreme Court in Jacobson about a mandatory vaccine was applied just a couple of months ago by the current Supreme Court to enforce an order that restricted how a church could conduct its services. There are an infinite number of ways a government could try to use this virtually unlimited police power described by Justice Harlan in this case. Good ideas don't require force. I just hope people will at least consider nonviolent options to these problems. And if one decides to adopt a mandatory policy enforced by police with guns, that they've adopted it only after exhausting all other options and acknowledging explicitly that government enforcement has its own set of problems that do not exist via voluntary means. Far too often, people assume that government force has no downside. Cable news, talk radio, you hear something to the effect of, hey, if we just mandate everyone do X, the problem is solved. Nothing to it. We just pass the law. Threaten everybody with government guns. Problem is solved. Without any acknowledgement that mandates have their own severe, formidable downside especially given the unlimited government power this case seems to provide for, as long as you can cloak it in the interest of the common good. I'm DK Williams, and this has been The Law, Episode 82, Jacobson versus the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, a case that the U.S. Supreme Court cited in its refusal just a couple months ago to grant an injunction sought by a church in California. We are brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. Let me know what you think. Hit me up at Twitter, at TheLawDKW and facebook.com slash the law with dk williams like follow all of that it really helps out share please rate leave a review i'm available for speaking engagements consulting teaching contact bethany at speakeasyideas.com for details and if you'd like to be a patron of this podcast and yes freedom is dangerous live dangerous